Well, if you would, take your Bibles and turn in them to Joshua. I've been preaching through the book of Joshua, and we've come to Joshua chapter 7. And let's start by reading this chapter together, and then I will seek to open it up for you by God's grace. Joshua chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, do not have all the people go up, but let them let about two or three thousand men go up and attack I. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So about three thousand men went up there from the people, and they fled before the men of I. And the men of I killed about thirty-six of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening, he and the elders of Israel. And they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? The Lord said to Joshua, Get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Get up, consecrate the people and say, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, There are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. In the morning, you shall be brought near by your tribes, and the tribe that the Lord takes by lot shall come near by clans, and the clan that the Lord takes shall come near by households, and the household that the Lord takes shall come near man by man. And he who is taken with the devoted things shall be burned with fire, he and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord, and because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. So Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel near tribe by tribe, and the tribe of Judah was taken, and he brought near the clans of Judah, and the clan of the Zerahites was taken, and he brought near the clan of the Zerahites, man by man, and Zabdi was taken, and he brought near his household, man by man, and Achan, son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was taken. 
Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua, Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel. And this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and two hundred shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing fifty shekels, then I coveted them and took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent. And behold, it was hidden in the tent with the silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the people of Israel, and they laid them down before the Lord. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan the son of Zerah and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold and his sons and daughters and his oxen and donkey and sheep and his tent and all that he had, and they brought them up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, said, Why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor. Amen. How does sin affect God's people when it remains undealt with? When a Christian woman begins sleeping with her boyfriend, when a Christian businessman engages in dishonest business practices, when a Christian husband refuses to work to provide for his family, and such refuse to deal with these sins. How will it affect their Christian lives? When a member of the church divorces his wife without biblical warrant, when one member takes another member to court, when a member makes it known that they no longer believe that homosexuality is sinful, and the church does nothing about it, how will it affect the ministry of the church? These questions get to the heart of Joshua 7. This chapter is all about how undealt with sin affects the people of God and what to do about it. So let me show you what I mean. First, we're going to walk through the story of Joshua 7 and unpack it together. Now, remember, the conquest of Canaan began in the last chapter, chapter 6. There the Lord had enabled Israel to conquer the city of Jericho by miraculously causing the walls of that city to crumble before them. Now, we should remember that the Lord had specifically instructed the Israelites to destroy the city of Jericho, including everyone and everything in it, and devote them to complete destruction. Only those items which would not burn, valuable metals like gold and silver and bronze and even iron, Joshua said they were to be taken and put into the treasury of the Lord. And all of this was to satisfy the demands of God's justice against the sin of these Canaanites. And it appeared from verse 24 of chapter 6, as you got to the end of the chapter, 
He witnessed and read about the defeat of Jericho. It appeared that Israel had done what the Lord commanded them. Because there it said, And they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and gold and vessels of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But it turned out that Israel's destruction of Jericho wasn't as complete as it first appeared. Because here we get to chapter 7 and you see in verse 1 it says, But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Turns out that one Israelite man had violated the Lord's instructions to devote the city of Jericho to complete destruction by secretly taking some of the items of the city for himself. And yet, it's interesting, I want you to notice the remarkable way that verse 1 describes this event. It says, did you see it? But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things. Did you see what's remarkable about that description? The entire nation of Israel was described as having broken faith when one of its members, Achan, took some of the devoted things. In other words, there was a kind of corporate solidarity in the nation of Israel, in the old covenant community of God's people, which meant that the entire community of God's people was held responsible before God when one of its members sinned. Indeed, the verse went on to say, did you see it? The anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel because of Achan's sin. Now, that might not be something that we're used to as Americans steeped in individualism, but it's the way it was in Israel. God viewed them as a collective unit, and he held the entire nation responsible when any one of its members violated the covenant that they had made together with God. And that's what the term broke faith referred to, a violation of their covenant with God, a betrayal of trust between two parties in a covenant relationship. God had entered into a covenant with the nation of Israel at Mount Sinai. He had given them the Ten Commandments to tell them what it meant to be faithful to him in this covenant relationship. And Israel had been unfaithful to God when one of its citizens, Achan, had, you can go down the Ten Commandments, number nine, coveted what belonged to God, when he stole what belonged to God, when he lied about it. They had violated their covenant commitments to God. They had betrayed him. Indeed, there's a sense in which we need to see that this is what all sin is. It's not just breaking some abstract rule. That's how some people get hung up. Why does God get so bothered about breaking a rule? No. God is our creator. 
He made us in his image. We belong to him. We are called to reflect his character. To sin, to break his commands, is a personal betrayal of and a rebellion against God on the part of his image-bearing creatures. That is why God takes sin so seriously. And we see God's reaction to Achan's sin, which was also Israel's sin, at the end of verse 1. Did you see it? It says, And the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. You know, when people betray our trust and they do wrong to us, it offends our sense of justice and it elicits a sense of anger against them. Well, it should not surprise us that our sin offends God, who is perfectly holy and elicits a righteous anger against us as human beings. So if you never think of God as getting angry at human sin, you just don't know God the way you should. Because this is an important aspect of his character that he has revealed to us in the scriptures. So verse 1 sets the stage then for the rest of the story. It explains why things transpire the way they do in the remainder of chapter 7. However, we should remember that neither Joshua nor the other Israelites, except, of course, Achan, knew what is revealed to us there in verse 1. They had no clue. And this is why, as we see in verses 2 through 5, Israel just simply continues on with the conquest as if nothing was wrong. So after watching the Lord give the city of Jericho into their hands... The nation of Israel had every reason to expect that the Lord would do the same with the next city, which happened to be a little city called Ai. So in verse 2, Joshua sent out spies like he had done with Jericho, and the spies returned with another optimistic report as they had done with Jericho. They said, do not have all the people go up, but let two or 3,000 go up and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. And apparently Joshua thought this was sound advice because you see that he followed it in verse 4. There it says, about 3,000 men went up there from the people. But the result of the battle was exactly the opposite of Jericho. Instead of Israel defeating the men of Ai, the men of Ai defeated Israel. Indeed, the text emphasizes this was a complete rout says in verses 4 and 5, And they fled before the men of Ai, and the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them at the descent. And what made it worse is that Ai apparently was a tiny city in comparison to Jericho. It was as if the Lord had fought against the armies of Israel instead of for them in this battle. Now we ought to pause. We ought to notice a major error that Joshua and the Israelites made at this point, which contributed to this disaster. After the Lord gave them the city of Jericho into their hands, Joshua seems to have assumed that the armies of Israel could defeat the much smaller city, I, sort of on their own. He seems to have forgotten the primary lesson 
of the victory over Jericho. That, that victory would come from the Lord when they followed his lead, when they followed his instructions. Because instead of asking the Lord what he wanted them to do next, Joshua would just move forward with his own plan to win the next battle. Indeed, the, the plan that was set forth by the spies, this plan which Joshua then adopted, seemed to assume that Israel could easily defeat the little city of Ai. Oh, we needed you, your miraculous intervention for Jericho, Lord, but we got this one. This is a sober reminder to us that when the Lord gives us success, it is very easy for us to respond to it by forgetting our dependence upon him and becoming proud and self-reliant. Now, of course, Joshua and the nation of Israel were quickly reminded by their disastrous defeat at the hands of an inferior enemy that their own strength and their own wisdom was not sufficient for them. But their success depended entirely upon the Lord. But we would do well to avoid to have to learn this lesson the hard way by keeping at the forefront of our minds, even when God gives us success in various aspects of our spiritual life, what Jesus taught us in John 15, 5. Do you remember? I'm the vine. You are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, of course, the reason for Israel's defeat wasn't just that they had attacked I without consulting the Lord first. Rather, the reason for their defeat, of course, was the sin of Achan. But, you see, presumably, they would have discovered Achan's sin if they had indeed stopped and consulted the Lord before attacking I. At the end of verse 5, we're told that as a result of their humiliating defeat at the hands of the men of Ai, it says, quote, the hearts of the people melted and became as water. That is a very striking phrase because previously in the book of Joshua, multiple times, that very terminology had been used to describe the Canaanites. And now it's being applied to the Israelites instead. One commentator, I think, put it very well. He said, The loss at I reversed the effect of the previous victories. Instead of Canaan fearing Israel, Israel now feared Canaan. Now, as you can imagine, Joshua is utterly confused by what has happened here. The Lord had promised to give them the land of Canaan. He'd been with them every step of the way to ensure that his promise would be fulfilled. Do you remember? He had parted the Jordan so that he could lead them into the land of Canaan. He had given them a resounding victory over their first city, Jericho. Why in the world would he suddenly give them over into the power of the men of this puny little city, I? It didn't make any sense to Joshua. So you see there in verses 6 through 9 that he did what he should have done before attacking I. He sought the Lord in prayer to find out this time what had gone wrong. 
Now, when you look at Joshua's prayer, you see clearly that he made a foolish assumption in it. Instead of considering that perhaps Israel's defeat might have been the result of something they had done wrong, Joshua assumed that somehow God had let them down. And so you see in verse 7, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? You know, there is something eerily similar between that complaint and the old complaints which the nation of Israel had repeated so often during the wilderness wandering. Why did you bring us out of Egypt just to let us die here in the desert? And yet, there's also something different. Joshua's complaint seems to be based more on confusion than unbelief. As far as he knew, Israel had done everything that God had asked of them. So it seemed to him like if there's a problem here, it's with God. God had suddenly abandoned them without any cause. Now, of course, the problem was that Joshua didn't have all the information, did he? He didn't see what God saw, so his assumptions about what God was doing were misguided. By the way, that is a trap that we can all fall into, isn't it? It's easy for us to question the Lord's ways. God, what are you doing? To even accuse him of wrongdoing, because we think we understand what is happening when we really don't have all the information or see all the factors. We don't see what God sees. And so our assumptions about what he's doing can easily be misguided. This is why, brothers and sisters, let our default always be to trust the Lord and to cry out to him, not to explain himself to us, but for wisdom and for strength to navigate through the circumstances that he has ordained for us, knowing that he has done so in his perfect goodness and wisdom, even if we don't understand why. The Lord spoke for the first time in this chapter, starting in verse 10. And he spoke for a long time. He began in verses 10 and 11. He said to Joshua, Get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Now, there is definitely a degree, can you feel it, of stern admonishment evident in these remarks. The Lord is basically saying to Joshua, Hey, why are you crying to me as if I've let you down? The problem isn't me, obviously, you should know that the reason Israel is defeated in battle was a failing on Israel's part, not mine. And then the Lord proceeded to reveal to Joshua what he had done. And it was not pretty. And his heart must have sunk. They had broken the terms of their covenant with God. In other words, they had been unfaithful to him by stealing some of the things that it belonged to God and lying about it, even though God had been so faithful to them all the way to this point. And then he went on to warn Joshua in verse 12. He says, Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. 
They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted to destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. In other words, the very thing that Joshua had warned the people about back in chapter 6, verse 18, had now happened. By taking things devoted to destruction into their camp, Israel had made their camp a thing devoted to destruction. And unless they remove those items and destroy them as God had intended, they would continue to be destroyed by God. It was a sobering and urgent um, matter. Then, having explained this real reason for Israel's defeat, namely their covenant unfaithfulness to him, the Lord went on to instruct Israel, okay, this is what you need to do about it. This is what you need to do about the sin in your midst. And we see it there in verse 13. He says, get up, consecrate the people and say, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord, God of Israel, there are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. And then in verse 14, he told them how to identify the person who had stolen the devoted things. It's actually not explicit in the Hebrew text, but the description seems to indicate that they were to eliminate suspects by casting lots. That's why the ESV actually translates it, take them by lot. And lots were sort of like, casting lots was sort of like casting dice. Um, It was a random event that God would control. And that's how they were going to narrow it down to one man. By controlling the fall of the lot, the Lord would reveal the guilty party. And then when the culprit was identified, the Lord explained what was to be done to him in verse 15. It says, And he who is taken with the devoted things shall be burned with fire, he and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord and because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. So, first we see that the nature of the penalty fit the nature of the crime. The one who had stolen the things devoted to destruction would become devoted to destruction himself. We also see that the severity of the crime of the punishment fit the severity of the crime. He was given a grave punishment because he had committed a grave sin. In fact, that Hebrew word that's translated an outrageous sin. If you look in your concordance, you'll see that that word is used to describe some of the most heinous acts in Israel's history. It's used to describe the rape of Dinah in Genesis 34, or when Amnon raped Tamar in 2 Samuel 13. You see, it's used here to show how seriously the Lord took this sin which had been committed and why he handed down such a severe penalty for it. Incidentally, the reason that we often balk at the severity of God's judgment recorded in the passages of Scripture like this one here is that we fail to see sin as God sees it. You know, if you live in filth all the time, you get used to it, don't you? Well, in a similar way, we as fallen human beings, we live 
in sin, so it's so pervasive that we just get used to sin. We no longer appreciate how truly disgusting it is. But to God, who is perfectly pure, the true stench of sin is readily apparent to him. So when we read about the way that he punishes sin in the scripture and we find our hearts recoiling at the severity of that punishment, we need to recognize the reason is not that God is somehow unjust, but that we have become desensitized to sin's true horror. The scriptures then help us to see it again. Joshua must have been shocked He must have been humbled when the Lord revealed that such a grievous sin had been committed by someone in the camp of Israel. But you know, the text doesn't tell us what went on in Joshua's heart. It just says in verses 14 through 18 that he hastened to follow the Lord's instructions to identify the culprit as soon as he could the next morning. So using the casting of lots, he zeroed in on the tribe, on the clan on the family and then finally on the man who had committed the sin and then joshua finally identified achan as this one who had stolen the devoted things from jericho and then tried to cover it up and achan had been successful in hiding this sin from the israelites they didn't know that he had done it but how foolish was achan to think that that was all that mattered what really mattered was that Yahweh who sat enthroned between the cherubim and the Ark of the Covenant in the midst of the camp had saw what he had done. And now God was bringing it to light for all to see. You know, this is a sober reminder to us that we have to fear God more than we do man when it comes to our sin. If all we care about is the judgment of men, then we'll try to hide our sin. Because it's realistic to think that we could hide our sin from the eyes of men. But if we fear God more than man, we will not be satisfied to try and hide our sin from men because we'll know that God still obviously sees it. And we will know that it is His judgment that matters most. So we will be willing to confess our sin to God and to bring it to light even before our fellow men, if that's what God requires, in order to make things right. Whatever the consequences are in this world that are involved with that process, we will know it's worth it to gain a clear conscience before God. But if we resist that, we can also know that at some point, God himself will bring our sin to light. In his providence. That's what he did with Achan. Whether it's in this life. Or even on the day of judgment. And that will be far worse. So brothers and sisters. Let's heed together. Those words of John. In 1 John 1, 9 and 10. Which say. If we confess our sin. He is faithful and just. To forgive us our sin. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But if we say we have not sinned, we've made him a liar. And his word is not in us. After singling Achan out by lot, Joshua urged him to confess what he had done. 
And so we see that he did so there in verse 20. It says, And Achan answered Joshua, Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent which with the silver underneath. You know, Achan's confession, it, it gives us an important insight into how sin works. It shows us that behind Achan's theft was coveting. In other words, Behind his outward act of taking what belonged to another was an inward desire for it. And this, by the way, is true of every sin. Sin always begins in the heart. Sinful actions are birthed out of sinful thoughts and desires. And this is why we will never be able to defeat sin in our lives if we don't deal with it in our hearts. Before you can learn, for instance, to speak kindly to someone, you have to deal with the bitterness in, toward them in your heart by resolving to forgive them. Before you can stop looking at pornography, you must develop a habit of saying no to sexually immoral thoughts and desires whenever they arise in your heart rather than indulging them. Before you can learn to submit to authority figures in your life, you have to put to death the proud attitude of your heart. In every case, by the way, we should remember that it is the truths of the gospel and of your new identity in Christ that are the antidote, that are the key to dealing successfully with the sin of your heart. Do you need to forgive? You need to remember how God has forgiven you in Christ. Do you need to put off filthy thoughts and desires? You need to remember how God has sanctified you and made you a saint, a holy one in his kingdom. We also see from Achan's confession how deadly the love of money is. You know, Paul warned, 1 Timothy 6, 9 and 10, he said this, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmless desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. You know, it was the love of money. That was the root of Achan's outrageous sin. And it is the root of many destructive sins in the lives of unbelievers, but also of believers. It is a great danger to see the love of money in our hearts and do nothing about it. And be careful, brothers and sisters. This is a deceitful desire. We can easily rationalize it away. Oh, I don't love money. It's just that blank. But our only safe route is to see it in our souls, to acknowledge it for what it is, to put it to death by the power of the Spirit, and to replace it with contentment, satisfaction with what you have. 1 Timothy 6, 7-8 through 8 says, We brought nothing into the world, 
We can take, we cannot take anything out of it. But if we have food and clothing with these, we'll be content. That's a hard word, brothers and sisters. We need to take it to heart. In the last section of chapter 7, verses 22 through 26, we're told how the Israelites executed judgment upon Achan just as God commanded. They went, they recovered the stolen items from under Achan's tent. Then they took the devoted items as well as Achan and his family and all his possessions and they put them to death outside the camp of Israel. First they stoned them. Then they burned them with fire. And then finally they covered them over with a large heap of stones as a memorial to remind the people of Israel throughout their generations what happens to those who violate their covenant with God. You know, verse 26 tells us that when all of this was said and done, the Lord turned from his burning anger. You know, this is what the Bible calls propitiation. God's wrath is only propitiated, appeased, turned away when the demands of his justice are satisfied. And in this case, God's burning anger against Israel was turned away. He was propitiated when they satisfied the demands of his justice by punishing Achan for his sin. And brothers and sisters, this sober scene, it should give us a a fresh appreciation for the gravity of the gospel message. Because the gospel announces this good news that God has saved all of us who believe in Christ from his own wrath by satisfying the demands of his justice against us for our sin by punishing not us, but his own beloved son at Calvary's cross in our place. Our sin was laid upon Jesus who willingly bore it to the cross and the judgment of God was executed upon him there instead of us. There is a sense in which our Lord Jesus Christ became like Achan for us so that God could turn from his burning anger toward us because of our sin. I love that line of the old hymn and how well it put it, bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Oh, sinner, if you are here and you have not done so yet, repent of your sin, put your trust in Jesus Christ to save you from the wrath of God through his death on the cross for your sin. The last line of the chapter says, Therefore, to this day, The name of that place is called the Valley of Achor, which meant trouble. You know, that note reminds us that these events, oh yes, it's a dramatic story, isn't it? But it's not just fictional. It really happened in space and time. In fact, the author is telling his original readers, he's saying, look, you know that Valley, Achor? This is where it got its name. And if you go there, he says, you can still see the stones piled up over Achan's grave. Well, we've walked through the story. And let me just close by 
reflecting on its main point and how it applies to us. You know, the main point of Joshua 7 is that serious sin committed by one of its citizens disrupted Israel's relationship with God and needed to be dealt with before they could resume the conquest. And, you know, we're not Israel. We're in a different situation than them. But, you know, that principle that's at the heart of that main point applies to us as Christians and as Christian churches today. Serious sin disrupts our relationship with God and needs to be dealt with before we can move forward in the Christian life and ministry with a clear conscience. Now, let me hasten to clarify that we're talking here about serious sin. I mean, every Christian sins every day in far less serious ways. And these sins are serious in one sense. They require the death of Christ upon the cross, but they are... um, they're not so severe that they disrupt our relationship with God. God mercifully bears with so many sins on our part that we commit every day. He's mindful of our weakness and our corruption. And he bears with us like, like a, a loving parent does with their children. But there are some sins which we commit that are so serious that they disturb the quality and the communion of our fellowship with God. One thinks of things like, committing adultery, or stealing, or blatant lying, or violence, or it could be an internal sin, like a spirit of stubborn pride and selfishness that has become so obvious that it is odious in our relationship with those around us. Such serious sins defile our consciences. That's one way you'll know. You'll know. Your conscience will be ruined by it. And the Lord will stop listening to our prayers until we repent and do what is necessary to put things right with him. It doesn't mean he doesn't love us. It means he's saying, stop. Don't pretend. Don't keep going on. You need to deal with this. And we see this in Scripture. Do you remember how in Psalm 51, which David wrote, after the occasion of his adultery with Bathsheba, he said he had lost the joy of his salvation. And he cried out to the Lord, Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. Renew a right spirit within me. Isaiah chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, The Lord told Israel, I will not listen to their many prayers, because their hands are full of blood. And if you want me to listen to your prayers again, he says, you need to remove these evil deeds from before my eyes. Micah chapter 3 verse 4, the prophet said of Israel, Then they will cry to the Lord, but he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them at that time because they have made their deeds evil. Proverbs 1, 28 and 29, it says, Then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek diligently, but they will not find me, because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. Peter warns us as Christian husbands, Show honor to your wives. Why? So that your prayers may not be hindered. As you see reflected in these verses, this dynamic, it can be true at the individual level. It can be true at a corporate level. You know, serious sin in the life of an individual Christian will disrupt that individual Christian's fellowship with the Lord. And as in the case of Achan, when serious sin is tolerated in a church, 
it will lead to dire consequences for that church in relation to God. You think about it in Revelation, those letters to the seven churches, chapter 2, verses 18 and following, the Lord rebuked the church because they were tolerating, he says, that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. And he warned the church, he says, if you keep tolerating her, I'm going to come and I'm going to judge not just her, but I'm going to judge everyone who is listening to her teaching. Or can think, consider 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where Paul rebukes the church in Corinth. He says, there is a man in your congregation who is sleeping with his father's wife. He says, you need to deal with that. If you don't, it's going to spread like leaven throughout the whole congregation. You see, just like the nation of Israel, the church, God's new covenant people, is called to be holy as he is holy. And therefore, that means we cannot tolerate serious sins in our lives, either individually or corporately. And when we do, it will disrupt the quality of our communion with God until we deal with it sufficiently. And only God can tell us how to do this, which he has in the Bible. So for individuals, dealing with serious sin means true repentance. You know, repentance biblically unpacked involves, yes, understanding your sin, that is viewing it in the light of Scripture, Also, confessing it is wrong, acknowledging that it is wrong, rather than excusing it or rationalizing it away, and committing to forsaking it. That is, taking the necessary steps to stop committing it. Now, sometimes repentance can be done privately before God, but at other times, especially when sin, for instance, has become a very deep entanglement or when it has seriously damaged other people, then you have to confess your sin to other Christians and you need to make restitution and you need to get accountability and help. You know, these are the types of things we see in, for instance, James 5.16. He says, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. So we can't always think, well, I'll just do this just between me and the Lord. Now, all of this, I realize, it's only possible by the power of the Holy Spirit. God grants repentance. The scripture repeatedly testifies that but he will enable us to do it as hard as it is. You know, with dealing with sin in a corporate context, that third aspect of repentance will also involve what's often called church discipline. In other words, the church must take steps to remove a member who has or is committing serious sin if they do not repent. So now, of course, this is going to look different in different circumstances. You know, In 1 Corinthians 5, when you have the man sleeping with his father's wife, Paul immediately says, the next time you're together, you need to remove this man from your midst. With respect to the person who was stirring up division in the churches in Crete, Paul told Titus, he says, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Or in Matthew 18, you have a personal offense. If a brother sins against you, 
And you have a much longer process. Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two others along with you that every charge may establish by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. Again, not every sin merits this type of corporate disciplinary action. But when it comes to serious sin... The church must deal with it, no matter how uncomfortable and difficult it might be to do that. Both the health of the church and the reputation of God is on the line here. We've seen from Joshua 7, God takes sin in the lives of his people very seriously. And so we have to do. Now, of course, the purpose of this discipline is not just punishment, but it's protective For the church, it's restorative for the individual. So whenever the sinning member truly repents, well, the church should be willing to forgive and to restore. God forgives us when we repent. We have to do the same for every person in our midst. And that should be the goal throughout the process. Well, to conclude, how does sin affect God's people when it remains undealt with? That gets right to the heart of Joshua 7. And in this chapter, we see serious sin disrupts our relationship with God, both individually and corporately. It doesn't mean we're cut off from God, but it disrupts the quality of our fellowship with God. And we have to deal with it before we can move forward in the Christian life and in ministry with a clear conscience. So let this chapter, brothers and sisters, be to all of us, myself included, a wake-up call to our souls to produce in us a humble-hearted willingness to do just what we've been talking about with God's help. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you, O God, for these sobering passages, these minor key heavy notes that you sound in Scripture on occasion so that we might be humbled and sobered up. And Father, we pray that you would give us a deep poverty of spirit, a lowliness of mind that would enable us to be soft and tender in our conscience and to respond to sin with the appropriate seriousness, both individually and corporately, And give us the strength to be repentant people every day, confessing our sin, asking for your forgiveness, dealing with serious sin when it arises in our life in a sufficient way that we might have a clear conscience before you, O God. Please grant us integrity individually and as a church so that we might be a shining light for you in the midst of our corruption and weakness and sin that we commit every day, that we might be striving for holiness and radiating your own glorious character in our lives. By the power of the Spirit, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.